Amen. <clears throat> Thank you, Pastor Marvin. And uh, I don't know if you heard what I heard, but I heard Pastor Marvin throw down a gauntlet for the rocket uh, building contest. So I think he thinks he's going to build the highest flying rocket. So if you want to challenge him, I suppose you could get the kids involved too, but I don't know how many kids. We'll see how that goes. But I'd, it is a lot of fun, so I encourage you to come out to that day. I think Bobby Doyle is helping with that, and he's... No one knows more in our church about launching rockets than uh, Bob Doyle, so uh, he'll help you with that. Um, we're going to get into the Word this morning in 1 John chapter 2, if you want to turn there in your Bible, 1 John chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one in your chair rack. 1 John chapter 2 is right about page 1020, 1021 actually, if you want to turn there. Sometimes people are surprised to learn that I wear glasses um, because I wear contacts all the time on Sunday mornings. And if you see me in a grocery store or something during the week on my day off, sometimes you'll see me wearing glasses and they'll be like, something's different about you. And you won't realize what it is, but I have worn glasses for a long time and uh, many of you I can see do too. I'm at that age where um, some of you have gotten to maybe as well that my glasses need glasses. Anyone else there? I put my contacts in, and then I still need to put another pair of glasses. I, I, I fought that off for a while, but, uh, but I'm kind of there at times. Um, but I'll tell you who's not surprised to learn I need glasses anytime. Well, it hasn't happened very often. But if a police officer were to pull me over, he wouldn't be surprised because on my license, and some of you have it too, it says, wears corrective lenses. Anyone else got that on your license too? Yeah, you got that on there? It's kind of important, right? I mean, if I got in an accident, I mean, it would be important to know, do you actually, can you see? Uh, should you be driving? Um, but it's on there. That's actually when I learned I needed glasses, when I went for my license. I didn't think I needed glasses. The DMV disagreed. And um, it says on my license that I wear them now. But I want to talk about corrective lenses because when it comes to following God, when you come to God, whether you know it or not, you get an eye exam. And when you come to start to follow God, the truth is we all need corrective lenses. We all need to recognize that we have been looking at things one way and seeing things one way, but if we're going to start to follow God, we're going to have to start to see things differently. We're going to have to change the way we view things and change our lens. In fact, my vision, and probably like some of you, is I'm nearsighted. I, you know, I, I, my, I have myopic vision. I can see things close up, but I have a harder time seeing things far away. And I actually think this is also the vision correction we need when we come to God. Because when you come to God, I think we often have a short-sighted or a near-sighted vision, and God wants to give us some distance vision. God wants us to look past what we can see immediately in front of us and wants us to be able to see a little further down the road. But the truth is, before you come to God, most of us are looking at just what's right in front of us. And we do a good job seeing what's in front of us, but maybe not what we can't see further down the road. John, who wrote the letter of 1 John that we're looking at uh, these several weeks together this summer, he recognizes 
that the followers of Jesus, the young Christians that he's writing to, need a vision correction. And I believe we do as well. We need to check our vision this morning. So I want to talk to you this morning about what it is that needs to be corrected about our vision, why it's such a problem, and how to correct it. I'm going to spend a good amount of time on that first one, what needs to be corrected, and then go quickly through those second two. But let's look at our passage this morning. It's 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Here's John. He's a disciple of Jesus Christ. He followed Jesus. He walked with Jesus. This is the John that wrote the Gospel of John. And then he also, in his later years, he's probably in his 80s when he's writing these letters, wrote letters to the churches helping these young Christians to learn how to follow Jesus. So in 1 John, this letter, he writes this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's this last line, or the last line that says the world is passing away, that, that points me to this kind of metaphor of vision. Uh, because I think the idea that we get focused on this world that's passing away, this world that's kind of right in front of us, and God would have us think about a world that is beyond this world, that our vision should be expanded beyond that. But let's look at a couple points out of this passage together. And the first one is this, when you love this world or the things of this world, you have a vision problem. If you're following God and you have a love for the world and the things of the world, you have a vision problem. Because the first verse of this passage says, do not love the world. John says, do not love the world. Well, that's interesting. Let's stop there for a second. Because you might be thinking, what I was thinking when we read this passage, that wait a second, you just said this John that wrote this letter, Pastor is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. And I don't know a lot of verses from the Bible, but I know one verse from the Bible. And if you only know one verse from the Bible, you probably know or have heard John 3.16. And John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, wait a second. Same author. And one passage says God loved the world. And this other passage we just read says if you're going to love God, you can't love the world. So how do these two things come together? Now, you're probably thinking, all right, pastor, I know you're not going to trick me on this one. You're probably thinking, I know it's translated from the Greek language, and a lot of times Greek has multiple words that we translate in the same word in English, and that's what's going on here. A lot of times that is what's going on. That's not what's going on in this passage. It's the same exact Greek word, cosmos. For God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son. Do not love the cosmos, or the love of the Father is not in you. It is the same word. 
John uses the word world more than any other biblical author, and it's not even close. He uses it all over the place in his writing. And because he uses that word a lot, he uses it in different ways. And the first way that I think he uses it is a lot of times what we think of when we think of the word world. It's like planet Earth. He does use it sometimes to mean that. It means the, the place where people and plants and pythons and piranhas live. It, it's this place, right? It's the world. It's Earth. And in fact, in John chapter 1, he's talking of Jesus, and he says the world was created through him, meaning that, the place, the, the people, the planets, the plants, the piranhas and, and pythons and other P words that you can think of, whatever, all created by God. But if John is saying do not love the world, he can't mean that sense of the world because very clearly we know that John believes and knows that God created the earth. And in Genesis, not only did he create it, it says, he said, it is good. At the end of every day of creation, God looked at it and said, it was good. It was good. It was good. So it can't be that John is saying you can't love any of that or, or you must hate all of that because God created it and it's good. Now, the truth is, this was an important point to clarify, especially to John's original readers, but maybe to us today, because the people that John was writing to, some of them thought the material world wasn't worth any of their time. In fact, they thought they, they made a dichotomy between the material world and the spiritual world. And they thought all that matters is the spiritual world. All that matters is your soul. All that matters is the immaterial stuff. Who cares about this other stuff? It doesn't matter at all. In fact, this other stuff, they would say, is evil. This, this material world is evil, and the best you can do is get as far away from it and not have anything to do with it as possible. There are people in our day that think that. In fact, there are, I think, some people that would call themselves followers of God that would say the holiest people have the least to do with the world, with the stuff of the world. The holiest people remove themselves as far as possible from the immaterial or from the material and just focus on the spiritual. They just go away and pray all day and talk to God and they don't think about the material world. But I don't think that's necessarily what God would want or say as the holiest of people. Or I, I, in fact, I think as we look at the scripture, we would say there's very much God created the material world. He said that it's good. And his greatest stamp of saying that the uh, material world has some value to it is the fact that Jesus himself in the incarnation entered this material world and not just entered it took on flesh became human and in fact still has a glorified human body and will forever have a glorified human body i mean shot i just mentioned it in her prayer he literally wrote in the dirt material he, he he so it isn't that jesus would say that the most holy person would just write off this material world that's just not true. 
even though there may be some people today that would try and convince you that it has no value or that you can treat the earth and the world and creation however you want because it has no value. All that matters is your spirit and the soul. But that really doesn't hold water with Scripture, with the God who created and then said, tend the garden, steward it, watch over creation, gave that job to humans. And so there is value in that, but this isn't the word that John, this isn't the nuance that John is using here, because he can't say, do not love that part of the world. Well, there's a second way that the world is used, and that's the John 3.16 way, and that is for people, the people of the world. When it says, for God so loved the world, it means God loved the people of the world. How did he love them? By sending his son to die for them. And we know that God loves the people of the world because in the very beginning of the Bible, back in Genesis, it says God created humanity in his own image. That every person you meet is in some way an image bearer of God. So there's value because every human in some way bears an image of the God who is ultimately creator. But there's also value in people because the scriptures say that Jesus died for humanity, that we might have a relationship with God. In fact, we read a verse last week in 1 John chapter 2 uh, that said this, that he, meaning Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And when it says world there, it means the people of the world. So sometimes John uses the word world to mean people, but he can't mean that here because he can't tell you do not love people because that's a complete contradiction of scripture and his own writing and of who God is. So that must not be what it means. So this is the third sense of what world means. And it's this third sense that John's using. And that's this, that the term world can mean a, what, the best way to put it is a worldly way of thinking. Do not love the patterns of thinking that this world would have. It's a thinking that grounds itself in having no God, no authority. It's a thinking that grounds himself, itself only in seeing what's before you what you can see, touch, and count, and thinking there's nothing more than that. As, as opposed to saying that matter doesn't matter, which we would say God doesn't say that, this type of thinking would say matter is all that matters. I mean, what you can see and touch, what you can count, what you can bank, that's all that really matters. Nothing else is important. There's nothing else that matters. There's nothing beyond this life. There's nothing before this life. You're here for a little while and you're gone. It's a worldly way of thinking. And John's saying, don't love that. Don't love that way of thinking. Make sure and watch out for that way of thinking. And this is where I would say this is the corrective lens we need. This is where we get nearsighted where we can look at only those things we can taste and touch and feel and think that that's all there is. And before you come to God, many times that's the way you lived your life. 
But once you come to God, you can no longer live your life that way. Pastor John Stott puts it this way. He summarizes a little bit of this passage by saying this. He says, though the world hates the Christian, the Christian must not hate the world. Nevertheless, he must not love the world or anything in the world. He's to be neither conformed to it nor contaminated by it. What then is to be the Christian's attitude to the world? He is to escape out of it. He is not to escape out of it, excuse me. He is to remain in it. He's to be unworldly without becoming otherworldly, living in it without being of it. And this is the life that you and I are called to. You've got to live in the world, but as Jesus said, you cannot be of the world. But when we come to God, what we don't often realize is we have a worldly way of thinking. We have a nearsightedness that needs to be corrected. What does it look like? What, okay, so what does it look like to love the world, to think in the, this worldly way? Uh, John actually clarifies it in verse 16. He says this. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. I, I don't love the way the ESV, the English Standard Version, translates this, this passage. We use, whether you know it or not, the, the, the Bible's in your chair rack or the English Standard Version, and we choose that version because it's a good translation, and it's a pretty good literal translation of the Bible. Um, and, and so we like that translation, so we put that in the chair racks. But the truth is, those of you that speak more than one language, you know that anytime something is translated, you're always making a decision about what word is the right word to use when you're translating from a language. So the Old Testament, most of it's written in Hebrew. The New Testament, most of it's written in Greek. And the translators have to make a decision on what the right word is. I don't, I don't love the word the ESV chose here in the desires of the flesh. It's a compound word that has a preposition in it, epi, and epi means over, or above, or beyond. So it's, it's the word desire, but it's overly desire. It's, it's to desire beyond what you should desire. So I actually prefer the way the New International Version translates it, and it says this, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And this is that worldly way of thinking. It's not simply a desire, it is an over-desiring. It, it is a lusting, it is a grabbing for desire. I remember the first time I heard this passage, I didn't really know it was this passage, but I went, it was in youth camp. When I was a kid, I used to go to summer Christian youth camps every summer for many years. And to be honest, I can't remember a single message I heard preached at youth camp. I'm sure they were all great, and I'm sure they were all helpful at the time, but I can't remember a single message that was preached. But I do remember going to a, 
afternoon, I guess it was a Bible study. I'm not even sure. They separated us out, guys and girls, from a team we were on. And the guys went with this guy named Steve Crino, who's a pastor now, and I know him now. But at the time, I thought he was this old guy who probably wasn't much older than me. Uh, but he was leading our group. And he shared this passage, and he said, guys, the things you're going to struggle with most in life are the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And I never can't remember a single message from camp, but that stuck with me for the rest of my life. Because one, because it was easy to remember, but two, because it made so much sense. And I thought, you know what, you're right. Just about everything I have struggled with fits in one of those categories. Just when I am trying to live for God and realizing I fall short, wherever it is, I can almost always put it under the category of either lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the body, an, un, an unbridled appetite for something, or the pride of life, some type of pride in my life. And I've wrestled with those things throughout my life, and I bet you have too. And that's what John's saying. He said that's a worldly way of thinking. To go after those things simply you see or feel or want or, or having a pride in your own heart, that's the type of thinking that John is saying, that's not compatible with God and with the follower of God. Pastor Tim Keller, in a sermon uh, on this passage, uh, talks about the inordinate desire and over-desire for things. And he gives three uh, kind of examples. He says food and drink. He said the lust of the flesh or the lust of the, the, the body. He says food and drink. He says there's nothing wrong with food and drink. There's nothing wrong with eating to live. He says the problem is the over-desire is when we live to eat. When everything is consumed around that thing. And if you think about our world... I mean, I don't know what the first century Roman world was that John was writing to, but I know they didn't have food network. <laughs> I mean, we have channels dedicated to watching other people make and eat food. And we get to this place where the lust of the body, the lust of the flesh, that we don't, simply, we don't just simply eat to live, we live to eat or to drink. And John's saying, you, you got to be careful. A worldly way of thinking is this way of thinking that has an over-desire for a good desire that God gave you. It's when you make, and this is another line from Pastor Tim Keller that I love, when you make a good thing an ultimate thing is the problem. That's when, that's when it becomes an idol. When we make good things into ultimate things. So that over-desire for things. It says the same thing about rest and leisure, that, that in our world and in our culture, this is one of those other things, that maybe we've made rest and leisure that we used to rest to live, and now we live to rest. How can I work as least as possible and rest and have leisure as most as possible, right? How can I stop working as early as I can so that I can just rest and have leisure for as long as I want. That we used to rest to live, and now in many ways, we live to rest. We've elevated that, and it's become maybe an over-desire in our lives, and a lust for it. 
How do we know we're loving the world or living or looking at things through a worldly way? One commentator, David Allen, he gave kind of a list of things that I thought I'd share with you because I found it helpful and maybe you'll find it helpful too. When something engrosses our thoughts such that it excludes serious reflection on God, that you've got something in your life that pushes God out of your thoughts, pushes God out of your time, that it so consumes your thinking, that it so consumes your being, that thoughts and time with God are pushed to the side, that you may be caught in a worldly way of thinking. That when something engrosses all of our conversation, when you find yourself talking to people and it's always the same topic and it's never about God and it's always something that is consuming you, that maybe you've fallen into a worldly way of thinking. When we are unwilling to part with something when need be or give anything up for God's purposes. Again, the things God created, there's many good things. In fact, pleasure itself was the creation of God as a good gift. But when we hold on to that and say, well, that's mine, and I'm not going to let it go, even if God asks me to let it go, then I'm falling into a worldly way of thinking. Remember the rich young ruler that Jesus confronted, and uh, he said, look, I keep the whole law. And Jesus said, well, give away everything you have to the poor and come follow me. And he said, well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> what was Jesus getting at? You've got an over unhealthy desire. You've got a lust for the things of this world, and you won't let them go even when the God of the universe is asking you to. And if we get to the place where we're holding on to something so tightly that even when the God of the universe and the God of our souls who loves us and died for us comes to us and says, let that go, and we won't let it go, we have fallen into a worldly way of thinking. Then when God says, trust me with this, do what I said and trust me with this, and we won't do it, we've fallen into a worldly way of thinking. Another one is discontentment with our portion of the world's goods. If we secretly grieve because we're not blessed with every earthly convenience or delight that others possess, that we may be falling into a worldly way of thinking that I deserve. I deserve to be comfortable. I deserve, you know, and, and I deserve whatever. You fill in the blank. God owes it to me. That I'm just going to chase after that. I'm not going to be content. When we pursue it with greater zeal and enjoy it with higher relish than we do serving God, that our greatest joy comes from something other than God himself. If we expect great deference and resent the least slight from others, this is that pride of life, right? How dare you say that to me? How dare you think or talk that way about me? That we get this pride of life that comes in. We fall into a worldly way of thinking. Instead of I'm a servant, I'm God's servant. If we expect great deference, I got that. When we seek or to acquire or retain objects in the wrong manner. Maybe you got a good godly goal, but you're going to go after it in an ungodly way. That you're thinking in a worldly way. 
that we're caught up in worldly thinking. This is the world that John says, you can't love that world. You can't think that way. And this is the world where I think sometimes we don't realize that we have these lenses on us. Because you may have, maybe you say, well, I didn't come to God later in life, so I didn't have that lens before and then the change when God came. I grew up in the church. Maybe you did too. I still know that I need a vision correction. In fact, almost every day I got to pop those contacts in my spiritual eyes because I live in a world that wants me to think very differently. I live in a world that wants me to value things differently than God values them. I live in a world that pushes, whether it's through TV, advertising, magazines, websites, social media, and says, this is what you ought to make your decisions based on. This is what you ought to value. This is what's important. That you should never take a job that's going to pay you less money than you're making now. That you should never leave your job and, and go to the mission field or, or go do something like that. You should never do that. This is the world we live in, that, that, that God might ask you to do something that's not going to look good on your LinkedIn profile. How dare he? But that's the type of thing we need to look at and say, we might need to put a different set of lenses in, that we might need a vision correction, because we live in a world that wants us to think very differently than God has called us to see things and think. So we've got to be careful about that. I think these three things, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the, and the pride of life, I think John is actually once again taking his readers right back to Genesis. Just like he does at the beginning of his gospel where he says, in the beginning was the word, and there's no doubt he's trying to take your mind back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 where it says, in the beginning God created. I think in this passage he's trying to take you write back to Genesis chapter 3 when Eve was tempted for the first time. And the word says this, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, lust of the body, and that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life, that she took its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That John is saying, look, this goes right back to the beginning. This is how the enemy has always tempted us and continues right up to today to try and tempt you. The appetites of your body, the things your eyes sees and wants, and then the pride of your life. That this is what the enemy will try and use. This is, the, this is what you need to work against. This is what's in you that you and I need to root out. This is where John's saying, do not love the world. It's not the material world. It's not a place. It's not the people of the world. It's the ways of the world. That John is saying, you can't love those. You can't walk in those ways. And love God. And why is that very quickly? Point two, why is that? It's because love for God and love for the world is incompatible. Verse 15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's incompatible. You can't love both these things. You can't love God and have a worldly way of thinking that loves this world. 
It says the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love both. It would be like, um, it would be like, ladies, if, if, if a guy came up to you and proposed and said, you know, I'd love to be married to you. I'd love it if you would be my wife, and, and would you marry me, and, and we, we'll, we'll spend the rest of our life together. But I also have this girlfriend that I really love, too, and I'd like to keep her in my life and keep dating her while we get married. And you will run the other way as fast as you can if you ever hear that, and you should. But how much is that like what we do with God? Oh, God, I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I'll sing songs on Sunday about loving you, but on Monday I'm going to love the world, and I'm going to walk in worldly ways, and I'm going to love the things of the world. And John says it's incompatible. You, you can't do both. If you love the world, you don't love God. The love of the Father's not in you. And so he gives this command, he gives this imperative, do not love the world. Jesus said it this way, no one can serve two masters. For either we will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And John, throughout this letter, he's, he's, he's just putting up this dichotomy. He's saying, look, you're walking in light or you're walking in darkness. You're loving God, you're, or you're loving your brother and sister in Christ, or you're hating them. They say, you're loving God, or you're loving the world. Make your choice. Walk in the ways of God. And so, it tells us that we can't love the world and love God. They walk in these worldly ways and say we love God. Third, how do we correct it? Correct your vision by doing the will of God. Verse 17 says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides or lives forever. Whoever does the will of God lives forever. So the world is passing away along with its desires. There's an image there in the first century, and this is the image that goes along with that expression. It's, it's an image of a theater and a curtain. That, that the curtain comes down, and, and the stage people come out, and they take the props off the stage from the last scene. And that's what John's saying. Like, that, that's what's happening. That this world is passing away, that the curtain's going to come down on this world, and everything, if you thought that was what it was all about, if you thought that was what was all important, you're going to be surprised when the curtain comes down and those things get taken away and you find out those things didn't last. Those things were not what it was all about. That that's a short-sighted way of looking at things. That's a nearsighted way that you need a vision correction. If you ever read Pilgrim's Progress, this is Vanity Fair. Where Pilgrim, where Christian and his friend end up there and are tempted to leave the pathway to the holy city. If, it's like, I, I haven't seen one of these around lately, but I'm sure they're still coming around. The carnivals that would come around, that come around to the towns, right? There used to be one at the Kmart in Belrica. Uh, Wilmington, I think, had a big one. You know, in the towns, they'd have these carnivals that would come around. And if you go by the carnival at night, what do you see? 
you see the lights all lit up, you see the rides, you hear the do-do-do-do-do-do, you hear the music, you see all, you know, it looks like energy, it looks like excitement. Your kids are asking, hey, can we go to the carnival? And if your parents were like mine, they're saying, no, I don't know who put those rides together, so we're not going to the carnival. I'm sorry if you're a carny and you put rides together, I'm sure you do an awesome job. But that was my parents' perspective. But you ride there and there's so much energy and it draws you in, right? But what happens when you go the next day when the carnival's pulled out of town? It is some trash, some impressions on the grass where the rides were, and it's just gone. It's kind of the image John's given. This world is passing away. It's lights and music, and, but it's going to pass away. And if you've put all your, your effort and you've put all your energy into something that's passing away, you're going to be disappointed. And the wise person will do the will of God and live forever, is what he says in this passage. That if you're going to love God, you can't love this world. This world's passing away. And it is. I mean, the ideas, the thoughts, you know, the things that were popular, the thoughts of 100 years ago, 200 years ago, now they're passe. Now they're gone. Now they're out of vogue and out of style. And if you believe them, you, you, you know, you, you, you're missed the boat. The world's thinking is passing away. What's, what's so important today will be gone tomorrow. But the will of those who do the will of the Father will live forever. And so doing the will of God. That when you start doing the will of God, that I believe this corrects your vision. It's like when you, if you've ever delayed gratification by saving up for something you really wanted, right? You, you get your paycheck and you could go out to the mall and go shopping, but you said, no, I am saving for whatever you're saving for. I'm putting that away. And you discipline yourself to do that. And when you do that, your mind and your heart are set on that thing that you're saving for, right? And it's like that with the will of God. When you follow God's will, when you follow his direction, that your life and your vision starts being focused on that. When you leave the comfort of your home country to go to Thailand to go share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus, your mind and your heart are consumed with it because that's what your life is invested in. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So do the will of God, and your vision starts getting corrected to the ways of God. Whatever God's called you to do, to follow his will, when you do that, you have life. And John says you live forever. Let me close with this. I'm going to have our worship team come back. Let me close with Eugene Peterson's translation of this passage. So I'm talking about translations today. Eugene Peterson uh, wrote the message translation, um, which is a little bit of a paraphrase, and yet he did use the original languages and translate, but he did it in a way that that maybe you can connect with and helps people connect with, uh, with the scriptures in a more colloquial way. But I like the way he translated this passage, 1 John chapter 2, Verses 15 to 17. Here's what Eugene Peterson wrote. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, 
wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out, but whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. Whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. So, what I started out with, I think, is important to keep in mind. God doesn't hate this world. He doesn't hate the people of this world. Not at all. He gave his son to live, to, to, to die for them. He doesn't hate the good things that he made in this world. But let us all hold them and those things that God has given us to hold with the idea that they have been given to us to love God with and to love people with. And when we hold them so tightly that we think they're our ultimate importance and we get our ultimate meaning from them and we live for them, that we lose something of our love for God and love for the Father in that. That we need a vision correction if that's the way we're living. And so as the team's getting ready to sing this song, Christ is Enough, I want to just give you a little bit of space to listen to the Holy Spirit and to pray, to respond to this word as we close. Because then the question is this. Where in your life, where in your heart, do you need a vision correction? Where have you fallen into worldly ways of thinking? The lust of the eyes? The lust of the body, the flesh, an unbridled appetite for something? pride of life? Where have you fallen into holding on to something so tightly that maybe you have to let it go this morning and release it to God? Where have you said, Lord, I've fallen into a way of thinking that is a more informed by the ways of this world than it is informed by the ways of your spirit and your word? And I trust the Holy Spirit will speak to you. And, and the truth is, maybe you've, whatever's coming to your mind and heart right now, maybe God's bringing something to your mind and heart right now that you need to let go. And you, you're saying, I've done that a hundred times. I'll just remind you, I got to pop my contacts in every day. Every day I got to pop those contacts in because I need a vision correction. And it may be that every morning you got to get up and say, God, I release this to you again. I give this over to you again. I want to place this in. I don't want this to have a grip on my heart. I don't want this to have a grip on my life. Lord, I give this over to you. Father, Lord, thank you, God, that you love us enough to show us ourselves and what's in our sinful hearts, Lord, at times. That, Lord, what often governs our thinking is a lust of an eyes, flesh, pride of life. But we're like fish in water. We just don't see it because the environment around us doesn't want us to see it. But Lord, would you by your Holy Spirit show us those things in our life and in our heart, those ways of thinking that are not ways of the word, but they're ways of the world. They're ways that are passing away and they're not worth our lives. They're not worth our eternity. So, Lord, show us those. 
Help us to bring them to you and set us free from them. To hold everything you've given to us with grateful hearts and open hands. That this world would not get a grip on our heart. That you and you alone would have that grip on our heart and our lives. Speak to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Just take some time to listen, and then when you're ready, you can stand and join us as we sing this song, close out our service.